Hello, hello, and welcome to the Holistic Fitness Podcast, where you'll learn to get your goals without burning out. I'm your host, Laurie, and this show isn't just about movement and nutrition. You probably already know that exercise and nutrition is important for your mental and physical health and well-being. But it's also about stress management, mindset, shedding those limiting beliefs, and working through some of that childhood trauma while you're at it. Today, I'm joined by Terry, who has an absolutely phenomenal story. Terry Tucker is a motivational speaker, author, and international podcast guest on the topics of motivation, mindset, and self-development. He has a business administration degree from the Citadel, where he played NCAA Division I college basketball and a master's degree from Boston University. In his professional career, Terry has been a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, a high school basketball coach, a business owner, a motivational speaker, and for the past 10 years, a cancer warrior, which has resulted in the amputation of his foot in 2018 and his leg in 2020. He is the author of the book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Terry has also been featured in Authority, Thrive Global, and Human Capital Leadership magazines. Wow, Terry, I am so excited to have you. How are you going this morning? I'm great, Lori. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. And you have such a phenomenal story as well. Like, There's just so much to learn from you. So I'm really curious. I feel like when anyone gets onto this motivational speaking path or writes a book in nonfiction to help others, it's because they needed that help at some point in their life. So can you talk me through your dark night of the soul, so to speak, or the journey that you've been through to want to inspire people in this way? Yeah, I, I've had, unfortunately, I, I, I guess my fair share of, of dark nights. I, you know, it starts back when I was in high school. I was a, was a really good high school basketball player, but then I had three knee surgeries. And so, you know, now I've got to fight my way back from that and, and eventually was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to play, to play basketball at the Citadel. When I graduate from the Citadel, I, I move home to find a job. I am the first person in my family to graduate from college. Fortunately, I find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain. Unfortunately, I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who are both dying of different forms of cancer. Um, you know, fast forward, now I've got, you know, since 2012, I've been battling this rare form of cancer that that more than likely is going to take my life. I still have tumors in my lungs uh, from when I was diagnosed back in, in 2020 with having to have my leg amputated. So, you know, it's just been kind of one thing after another, but I've learned a lot through all those difficulties, through all those trials and things like that. And, you know, I guess you you have two choices. You can say, you know what, I'm going to succumb to the debilitating, you know, discomfort and misery or I'm going to learn something from it and maybe have the opportunity to help other people along the way. I I, I don't purport to have all the answers. As a matter of fact, I don't have all the answers. But what I try to do is say, look, these things have worked for me. And if they work for you, then by all means, take them and incorporate them in your life. Mm, Wow. I have so many questions for you, Terry. I am so sorry that you have endured so many trials throughout your life. And you've been able to take such a positive mindset out of it. I want to start with when you graduated college and you went home. Personally, you know, I come from a single parent, like low socioeconomic background. So I know 
how difficult it is to be the first in your family, you know, be the first with a six-figure salary, be the first that climbs the corporate ladder or whatever achievements it is. So what was it like going from being away from your family and studying and then moving back into that environment and trying to build yourself? Yeah, you know, I was I was all set to make my mark on the world, you know, with my newly obtained business administration degree. And I look back now and realize kind of, you know, what a knucklehead I was to think I knew anything about business just because I had a degree. But, you know, I, I guess the way I looked at it is, you know, my parents, my story is not, you know, my early, early story in my life is not one where my dad was an alcoholic and beat my mom and that kind of thing. It was just the opposite. I, I am the oldest of three boys. We are all athletes. We have all played sports in, in, through college. I even have one brother that was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers and the National Basketball Association here in the U.S. So, you know, our my experience has been the importance of family. And, and that's what I think our parents taught us. I used to a kid that my mom and dad used to do divide and conquer parenting where, you know, Terry's got a game on this night. So dad will go to that. Well, Larry's got practice at the same time. So mom's going to have to go to that. So my parents were always running in a million different directions for our benefit. And mm. so, you know, our parents taught us the importance of, of loving each other, caring for each other, supporting each other and things like that. So when my, you know, when I moved home and it was, yeah, I want to get out in the world and, and sort of spread my wings and do my own thing. I was like, well, okay. But, you know, my parents had given me so much growing up, giving my brothers and I so much growing up that it was like, I don't care if it would have taken 30 years to do that. It was the right thing to do. It was, okay, now it's my turn to help you for all, not that it's a quid pro quo or anything like that. You do it because you love people. And, and, and our parents taught us the value of family. So now it was my turn to help my mom and, and my dad and my grandmother and that deal with this, you know, cancer, this horrible scourge that we've had to deal with, you know, most of our lives. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't happy about it, but at the same time, I was absolutely committed to doing it because that's what, that's what we were taught. That's what you do with family. And, I, and I'll end on this story. My, my youngest brother was in high school when my dad was dying of cancer. And I remember, you know, I, my brother had a basketball game and I said to my dad, look, I'm not going to go to Brian's game. I'm, I'm going to go work out. My dad was like, no, you're not. I'm like, what, what, what do you mean? No, I'm not. I, I'm a grown man. I have my own job. I have, you know, what do you mean? I'm not going. He's like, no, you don't understand. Your brother needs you. You know, your brother needs you at that game. And that's what our family has always been about, supporting each other, loving each other, caring for each other. So you're going to the game. And, and I was just trying to, you know, get a little independence at that time. My dad was absolutely right. And I ended up going to the game and found another time to work out. But that story really, I think, kind of epitomizes the fact of what's really important. Yeah, I couldn't go work out anytime. No, you need to go and support your brother. <laughs> I love that. Your parents sound like amazing people. Something that seems to be really popular in my generation at the moment, and it's almost used as a buzzword, and I'm certainly all for it, but it's talking about childhood trauma and the lessons that, that maybe the not ideal traits that our parents have passed on. For me, like working through my childhood trauma, what was really important is to realize like my parents were two adults doing the best that they could at the time. Like I'm 30 now. My mom at 30 was single with two crazy children. Like I could not even imagine that. So you have a really positive view of your family. 
What would you say to those who are focusing on more so like the negative aspects of their childhood when it comes to their mindset as an adult? I mean, you you can't live life backwards. I, I mean, you certainly can learn from it. You can certainly say, hey, there were some mistakes. And I mean, let's face it, all families are dysfunctional in one way or the other. And I, I think you're absolutely right. The vast majority of parents do the best they can with what they have. And and I, I remember our, our daughter is a is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and, and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. And I remember one time she was at the academy and she called home, you know, just to call home on the weekend. And she said to, to my wife and I, she said, you know, mom and dad, I'm really glad that I have the relationship I do with you because so many kids here hate their parents. And I thought about that. I mean, the Air Force Academy, you know, the, the military academies, West Point, Navy, Annapolis and that. I mean, they're some of the, the best and the brightest kids in the world. And I often wonder, do, do parents push their kids? You know, it's like, hey, you're really smart. So you got to go do this. Well, I, I really don't want to do it. I don't care. You're going to do it anyway. And and so I, I guess I would say, look, you, you know, your, par- your parents probably did the best they could. Learn from the things that they did right. And also take the things they did wrong and say, okay, I'm not going to repeat those when it's my turn to, you know, have a family if you choose to do that and things like that. Because, you know, the only thing you can do from the past is learn from it. You can't go back and say, I'm going to relive it. And so many people try to do that. You know, my, I I am this way because I'm a product. Yeah, yeah, I get it. You are a product of of your past, but can't you learn from that and, and change your dynamic and move forward? I think you can. And, and, but again, I, I can't speak from, you know, my dad was an alcoholic and beat my mom. He, he didn't. So I can't speak from that. We all have our little traumas that we have to deal with in life. Mm, yeah, for sure. And I'm the same as you. Like, I can't, I can't speak from like terribly traumatic circumstances at all. So it's, it's hard to judge what others go through because I'm sure some really do go through things that are difficult to forgive. What you just mentioned sounds like, a lack of accountability. When you're focusing on the past and blaming others for your current circumstances, that sounds like a lack of accountability to me. How do you help people become more accountable for their lives? I always tell people to, to do difficult things, mm. you know, and, and I know we're going to talk about the four truths here. So I'm trying to decide how much I want to say this about it at this point in time. But yeah, I mean, we all have trauma in our life, however you want to, you want to explain that. But I guess you, again, you go back to, you have two options. You can, you can take that trauma and say, oh, woe is me. This is terrible. Look at me. You know, I am the way I am because of my past. But then you look at other people who had the exact same type of trauma. You know, your, your parents were alcoholics or they were abusive or you were sexually abused or, or, or whatever it is. And those people have found a way out of that. Mm. And, And usually those people are incredibly strong individuals if they can find their way out of that to a point where, okay, yeah, I, that sucked, but I'm going to have to embrace that suck, use it to my benefit, and now move forward in a positive way. And, 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 and you know, I don't, I don't know how you stop people from hurting each other, but, you know, for whatever reason we do, we do mm-hmm. hurt each other. But what do you learn from that? What, what what do you do to make sure it's not repeated? What do you do to make sure that you don't perpetuate the cycle and do it to your children and things like that? I think it's a matter of growth, maturity, and character. Yeah, totally. Embrace the suck. I love that. Tell me about the four truths. So the four truths are 
are, are just something that I've learned probably throughout my life, but but more more recently since I've been dealing with cancer. And and I I have them here on a posted note on, on my desk. I see them multiple times during the day that constantly get reinforced in my mind. And, and I'll give them to you. They're just one sentence each. The first one is embrace the pain. Or excuse me, that was number two. Sorry. The first <laughs> one is excited con- about the pain. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. We're, the first one is control your mind, or your mind is going to control you. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life, as we were just talking about, and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more resilient individual. The third one I look at more as kind of a a legacy type of truth, and it's this. What you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one I think is pretty self-explanatory. It's as long as you don't quit you can never be defeated. And I, I kind of call those four truths the, the the bedrock of my soul. They're just a good place, I think, to start to build a quality life off of. Yeah. I mean, we're going to dive into all of these, but that first one, control your mind or it will control you. I mean... I watch some content on social media and ADHD is like a a lot on there. And I'm like, am I ADHD or am I a millennial that's just addicted to dopamine? Can you tell me more about like control your mind or can control you? Because I would love to learn some tips. Yeah. I, you know, when, when people used to ask me when I first kind of put these together, they're like, you know, which one's the most important? And and I used to say neither of them, none of them, you know, they're, they're all equally important. But the more I read, the more I think about this, I really think that that first one about controlling your mind is the most important one out of that that whole group. And I say that for several reasons. First of all, we all talk to ourselves, whether we like to admit it or not. You know, mm. I, and and I always tell people to be very careful with that self-talk because we all become what we think. When, mm. when I was uh, when I was growing up in Chicago. I had a, a friend of mine who I played basketball with who ended up going to the University of Indiana and playing for a basketball coach there by the name of Bobby Knight. And at the time, Bobby Knight was probably the best, certainly the most successful basketball coach in college basketball in the United States. And we used to see each other in the summer. And I used to ask him, you know, what experiences he had. And he said Coach Knight had a, a saying that went, mental is to physical as four is to one. So here's this very successful coach that's, you know, teaching elite athletes to use their bodies to be great basketball players on the court. But what he was really saying with that quote is that your mind or your mindset is four times more important than Mm. than anything you're going to do. And I remember when I had those knee surgeries when I was in high school, when I went back playing basketball, my, my mind, my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my mind. You know, things like, hey, you're probably a step slower because of those operations. And college coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you because you've had these surgeries. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I'm still playing at an elite level and coaches are still reaching out about the possibility of playing for their college or university. So I guess I learned early on that I needed to change the narrative. And and the other thing I'll say about this is, we we all, you know, we all we're human beings. We have negative thoughts. Don't think that, you know, the most positive person in the world never has a negative thought. We we absolutely do. And and I guess the way I look at this is if I took a basketball, I'm going to use a basketball analogy here. If I took a basketball, I went out onto the court 
and I practiced shooting free throws, actually physically shot the free throws, there would be a certain part of my brain that would light up. Mm. If I actually thought about picking up that basketball, going out onto the court and shooting those free throws, that exact same part of my brain would light up. So whether you physically do it or whether you think about doing it, and that's why I think it's incredibly important to be careful of that self-talk. Because if you're, you know, for example, I mean, if you're taking an algebra class and you're like, I'm terrible at algebra, I'm not very good at math, I suck at this and stuff like that, eventually you're going to hardwire your brain to the point where, yeah, you are bad at this and you're not going to be able to overcome that. So be very, very careful with the type of self-talk you do. Understand you're going to have negative self-talk, but also understand that you can change that narrative and put something positive into your brain. Yeah, wow. And athletes know this. Athletes rehearse what they're going to do in their mind before they actually do it to be at the top of their game. It it kind of reminds me... So my first corporate job was I led a team of flight attendants and we had really intense CPR training and we also rehearsed doing CPR in like our emergency procedures. So in our mind, like it was ingrained in our mind to be able to fight a fire, provide CPR. And when it came to actually doing it, there was a situation where I pulled a six-year-old boy out of the pool. He was dead. I had to provide him CPR. Kicked right into gear because I'd mentally rehearsed giving CPR so many times on infants, on children, on adults. And it only took a few compressions and he started vomiting up all the water. But like, Mentally rehearsing doesn't just like save lives. It also, um, it also helps you have that dream life that you want or that dream body that you want or whatever that is that you're seeking. It, it absolutely does. You're, you're right. I mean, because whenever we get into a crisis situation, I, I mean, you know, I was a police officer and, you know, all the things that happen to your body, you know, in a stressful situation like that, if you have to to shoot somebody or if you have to draw your gun, mm. potentially, shoot, you know, you get tunnel vision, your hearing goes away, your fine motor skills, you know, go out the window and, and, and you are successful because, as you said, you've practiced that thousands and thousands and thousands of times. I, when I was, I'm really going to date myself now, but I'm, I'm going to tell you a story. Back in 1976, I was I was 16 years old. It was the United States bicentennial year. There was a, an Olympic swimmer by the name of Shirley Babishoff who won a gold medal at the Olympics. And she had a saying, she said, winners think about what they want to happen. Losers think about what they don't want to happen. Ooh. So losers are able to overcome their negative minds and think about the things they want to occur where losers can't see the value of participating, you know, or, or following or finding a goal or a dream and trying to make that that happen. And, and I think that it, it's such a simple quote, but it's so true. You know, winners think about what they want to have. I, I see myself being successful, just like you said. I've practiced this a million times. So when it happened, boom, I'm able to just jump right in without even thinking about it. Whereas losers think about all the things they don't want to happen. So when it comes time for them to perform, well, I've really spent all my time thinking about the negative. I've never thought about myself being successful. So again, going back to, you know, we become what we think. Hey, Holistic Fitness fam, a quick message from one of our sponsors, Ned. As you all know, I recommend good nutrition, movement and stress management practices before supplementing. So you know what type of supplementation that your body actually needs. For me, I supplement with very few products, but Ned is one of them. 
I'm a type A, high energy, ambitious business girly with massive goals. And sometimes I honestly just need to chill out and relax a bit. I've found that both Ned's de-stress and sleep blends fit in with my busy lifestyle and ambitious goals, but I was honestly not a big fan of CBD products before trying Ned, mostly because of the culture surrounding weed. I just didn't want something that was going to alter my state of mind so that I became much less of a goal-getter or less ambitious. That was until I learned about full-spectrum hemp and their benefits. Ned blends a chock full of premium CBD and a full-spectrum hemp of active cannabinoids. Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil nourishes the body's endocannabinoid system to offer functional support for stress, sleep, inflammation, and balance. These products are science-backed, nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. All of Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA-certified organic hemp plants grown by an independent farmer named Jonathan in Colorado. I'm obviously a big fan, but don't take just my word for it. Ned CBD products have over 2,000 five-star reviews, and they work with incredible partners in the medical field like Dr. Caroline Leaf, Dr. Christian Gonzalez, and Dr. Will Cole. Ned is providing Holistic Fitness podcast listeners a very special discount. If you'd like to give Ned a try, listeners get 15% off Ned products with the code Lori Lee, L-O-R-I-L-E-E. Thanks, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering a natural remedy to bring balance to so many people's well-being. Speaking of the negative, embracing your pain, the pain and difficulty we all experience in life and using that pain to make you stronger and more resilient. Do you think we're getting more soft? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm a millennial. I feel like I'm so, like, I, I get therapy. Like, therapy is amazing as well. But, like, how do you take care of your mind and, like, do the inner work while also, like, not becoming so soft that you can't embrace difficulty and pain? Yeah, that's a great question, especially when, in a lot of times, your mind is working against you. And, you know, because your your brain is hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to mm. seek pleasure. So to the brain, the status quo, the way things are right now, comfortable and familiar, just leave it alone. Don't mess with it. But the only, and, and you know this, and most athletes know this, you know, the only way you're going to grow, the only way you're going to get better, the only way you're going to improve is if you step outside those comfort zones and do things that make you uncomfortable. And I always recommend this to people. I try to do this every day of my life. Do one thing every day that makes you nervous, that scares you, that's potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. But, you know, it's like, I don't feel like going to the gym today. Uh, No, go ahead and do that. You know, uh, well, is that real? Yeah, just those little, little bitty things every day that are, get up an hour earlier, you know, to read, to journal, to meditate, whatever, you know, you do. Oh, that's a little, yeah, okay, but that's not a big deal. Yes, those little things every day get you to the point where the big disasters in life hit us, and they hit all of us. We lose somebody who's close to us. We get fired from our job. Find out we have a chronic or a terminal illness. It'll put you in a position where you'll be so much more resilient to handle those things than the people who just kind of muddle through life. I always like to say that there are so many people that live a casual life And as a result of that casual life, their goals, their dreams, their ambitions become a casualty of that unplanned living. Ooh, 
That is so true. If people aren't doing the hard things, all of those goals and ambitions, they're kind of because people don't want to do the hard work and, and goals and dreams often are the hard work. Can you provide a few examples of those painful, uncomfortable things that you do? Like someone listening to this might be like, uh, I don't really know what those painful things are. What would you say to them? Yeah, I, I mean, for I mean, one, uh, yesterday, I, I, I hate, and, and, and hate's a strong word, and I understand <laughs> it. I hate going to the dentist. But yes. yesterday I picked up the phone. I'm like, okay, I, I got to make my six-month dental appointment. You know, but I'm sure people are like, well, that's no big deal. Well, it's no big deal if you don't have a problem going to the dentist. For me, it, it I mean, is it a big deal? No, I can pick up the phone and make the call and, and I'll end up going. You know, it's not like I'll make the call and then I'll cancel it or something like that. So it's things like that. It's, you know, I, I had my leg amputated in 2020. You know, do, do I really feel like working with my prosthetic today? It's such a pain to, to put all the stuff on and to try to, you know, do that. Is that something I want to do? Not really, but hey, okay, I'm going to do that. So it, mm. it's just, it's stuff like that. It's like, you know, I, I've got to call this person, but I know it's going to be a difficult conversation and I'm not sure I want to do it. Do it anyway. You know, anything that you can do that takes you outside your comfort zone, because we just love to be comfortable. We love to, you know, and 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 we get sold that bill of goods that that's what life should be about. Life should be about comfort and all that. Thing. You know, I want to go to the gym today. Eh. I don't know. Do I really? It's cold outside. You know, oh, it's snowing today. Well, you know, I mean, you could come up with a million excuses, but it only takes one opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to go do it. So, yeah, I, I mean, just whatever you believe are things that make you uncomfortable. You know, I, I, I don't have a good relationship with my mom and dad. I'm going to call them tonight after, after dinner and, and just mm. see how things are going. Might be a little difficult, but you know what? It, it, it's going to help me to grow as a person. Yeah. Stuff like that. I often joke that the sauna house that I go to, it's both saunas and and cold like baths, like 42 degrees Fahrenheit. And I often joke that it's my church because I do it every Sunday morning and jumping in that cold bath helps me deal with life better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's uncomfortable for you, but it yeah. makes you stronger. Absolutely. For sure. So your third principle. Now, this is one that I struggle with personally. What you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. I think of my breakups with what I leave behind or, you know, jobs that I've, I've quit or, you know, people that I've quit. And, you know, I've just been through a breakup in three weeks ago. So it's pretty fresh. And a big thing that I'm super cognizant of when I'm breaking up with someone is I like I don't want to pass on trauma, you know? And I struggle with this like what what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. Can you explain that a little bit more to me? Yeah, I think again as, as I said earlier, I think this is kind of a legacy type of, of truth and right. I think it's important regardless of where we are in our lives. You know, we're just starting out, we're kind of middle age or you know, we're coming to the end of the road to to think about the end game of our life. You know, right. what do we want people to say about us at our funeral? What are people going to say about us, you know, at our funeral? I still have friends who actually read the obituary page, either in the newspaper or online every day for, for two reasons. One, to keep themselves humble. Mm -hmm. And two, to help them realize that someday somebody's going to be reading their obituary as well. When, when I had my leg amputated and I found out I had these tumors in my lungs, I went with my wife to the, to the mortuary and to the funeral or uh, to the uh, church and to the cemetery. And I planned my funeral. And because I come on these podcasts or I speak in person about motivation and the need to keep moving forward, 
I actually got some brushback from people who saw, who commented that somehow planning my funeral was in some way defeatist. And I kind of laughed and kind of went back at him. It's like, well, the last time I checked, I think we're all going to die. Don't think anybody's working on a cure for life right now. Every one of us is going to die, but mm. not every one of us is really going to live. And I heard a Native American Blackfoot proverb years ago that goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. Now, that's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not looking to hasten my demise in any way. But death is not nearly as scary for me because I believed I found the purposes for which I was put on this earth to do. I tried to live a good example of a life. And and I got to a point where death, you know, we're all going to die. That's the great thing about death. We all get it once. But, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's very uncomfortable for people to talk about death. And it's I think it's uncomfortable because they actually aren't comfortable with the lives they are living. If they are living good lives, I mean, we see it every year, you know, I mean, fall comes, things die, winter comes, and then in the spring things, I mean, it's, you know, the circle of life from the old Lion King movie and stuff like that. But it it, it really is. We see it every year. Why are we, why are we so afraid of it? Mm. It's because we don't live the life that I think we we believe we were born to do. For sure. I totally agree with you. What do you want people to say about you when you die? You know, that I, I've been asked that before. I, I, I don't have any grant. I, I mean, I, I, part of me, when people ask me that, I want to say, well, I'm a nobody. Nobody's going to remember any of me. And, you know, nobody's going to name a street after me or a building or a basketball court or anything like that. I am I, I'm, I'm just one in hundreds of thousands of people on the day that I die that, you know, are also going to die. I guess I just want people to say that I did the best that I could and I treated them fairly and that mm. I was a person of good character. And and if they can say that, then I guess that's fine with me. I, I'm hoping I'm hoping that what I'm able to give, I give while I'm living, you know, mm. that I that I give why, you know, here's here's lessons I've learned. Here's things I want to say to you. You know, here's things that are important to me. I'm giving to giving those to you now. When I die, you know what? You want to remember me? That's fine. Remember me by doing something good for somebody else. Mm. And I think we forget the ripple effect that we have on people um, because it may be, it may not be the person that you influence. Like someone might be listening to this podcast and change one behavior, but then maybe they become a coach and then change a hundred people. So every single day, we don't realize that ripple effect that we're having on people. And I guess that's what you mean by what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of people. You never know how your actions are really impacting others. I you, love this quote. Oh, you go. No, I was going to say, I, I, I tell you a quick story. I, I had a nurse who, uh, when I first met her, she was already a nurse, but she was in training on the unit where I get treated every three weeks uh, at the hospital. And about eight months later, she was taking care of me by herself. And she came in to the room and she said, Tara, I've got a story for you, but I, I'm a little uncomfortable telling it to you. I, I didn't I didn't know how to respond to that. You know, it's like, well, it sounds like I might enjoy the story. I hope you decide you want to tell me. She's in and out doing her thing, giving me the medication and stuff like that. About two hours later, she comes in, sits down on the bed. She's like, right, here, here's the story. She said, when I first met you, 
I was going to get out of nursing. I had a good friend of mine die. I was in a really dark place. I talked to my parents. I was going to quit nursing and I was going to go to work for Amazon. And she said, and then I met you and I see what you go through every day. When I have my treatment, it's I throw up, I shake bile. There's a lot of side effects to it. She said, I watch you do this every day. And then I went back and I read your story. I read everything you've been through cancer wise. And she said, after I finished reading your story, I knew where I was supposed to be, which was right here in this hospital taking care of patients. Now, if she would have never told me that story, I would have had no idea that my life had had such a positive impact on her. And when I was growing up, there was a basketball coach at UCLA uh, out in California who had a quote that went like this, a careful person I want to be, a little person follows me. I dare not go astray for fear they may go the same way. So I, I think that really kind of picks up on the point you were just making of we never know whose life we impact. I mean, I think there are so many people, I don't care how bad your life is, I don't care how miserable you are, there are people that you don't even know that are watching you that maybe would give everything they have just to walk in your shoes for five minutes. Yeah. And we often forget that we want to be in the shoes we're in right now, three years ago. Yeah. That that story, I just got like the biggest shiver up my spine about that nurse saying in nursing. I don't know why that just really, really touched me. And it goes, that kind of goes into your last principle out of the four. As long as you don't quit, you'll never be defeated. There are so many people out there that feel like they're getting life lesson after life lesson after life lesson. And I mean, you have gone through a lot, you know, more than I ever have that I know at a surface level. Um, can you touch more on that point about choosing not to quit? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you listen to the words, they're pretty self-explanatory. But I guess the way I look at that, at that truth is that someday my pain, my discomfort is going to end. You know, it may end through surgery. It may end through some type of new medication that's developed. Quite frankly, man, when I die. But if I quit, if I give up, if I give in to pain, then pain will always be a part of my life. I have a, a good friend of mine, my, my wife and I, this young man works with, with my wife, uh, and he's a former Navy SEAL, some of the, the toughest men in the world. And he's kind enough to call me on my off weeks when I'm not in treatment. And we talk about all kinds of things. But from time to time, we talk about what the SEALs call their 40% rule. And that basically says when, when you're done, when you're at the end of your rope, when you can't go on, you're only at 40% of your maximum and you still have another 60% left in reserve to give to yourself. Wow. So you know, the next time you're laying on the couch, and you, you know, oh, I should go to the gym, but I just don't feel like it. Remember, you've got that 60%, you know, or you're at the office and it's like, I got to stay and do this report, but I just don't feel like it. you still have that 60% left to reserve or, you know, you're in class or you've got a big test tomorrow and, and you know, oh, I really don't want to study for this. You have that 60% left in reserve to give to yourself. It's not like you're giving it to somebody else. It's like, look, I can do so much more. And I have found that in my life. I found that in my my cancer journey that I, I believe we all have a breaking point. But that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever give ourselves credit for. We quit, we give up, we stop long before we've ever been broken. Yeah. 
So that's where that fact comes from. I love David Goggins and he went through Navy, um, Navy SEALs Hell Week four, three times. And in yeah. his book, he mentioned that rule. And afterwards, me being like the left brain person I am was like, where is this study that says the 40%? And it comes from the Navy, Navy SEALs. Um, yeah, wow. That's incredible that he actually shared that with you as well. And those guys are some of the toughest on the planet. Sorry, yeah. if you ever need yeah, a concrete they go through, just Yeah, I, I, it's like, yeah, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, uh, just listening to what they go through in Hell Week, I'm like, I don't think I could do that with a period, like <laughs> as a woman, you know? <laughs> I just don't think I could do that. Too much of a princess for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it raises a really good point. You know, a lot of us give up, and I see this in clients with fitness, when... When I'm there pushing them, you know, they've got that accountability that they feel like they need to go further and further. And it's always so amazing for me to see them lift heavier, them do more reps. So do more, they go faster than what they usually would alone. And like, if someone can learn to embody that without a trainer, just staring at them the whole time, like it's incredible what you can do. It it really is. I, I, when I was at the Citadel, we had a, we had a, a president one year. By, by the name of James Stockdale, and this won't mean anything to you, but uh, Stockdale was the highest ranking prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam War. He was a prisoner of war. He was shot down wow. in, his, in his A4. He was shot down uh, and he was a prisoner for eight years. And he had all kinds of, he, he ended up winning the, the nation's highest military award, the Medal of Honor. But he led the resistance against the Viet Cong and he, he disfigured himself when he found out they were going to use him as propaganda and parade him around and things like that. And, and I didn't have a lot of interaction with him, but I was in an event one time and somebody asked him, you know, Admiral, who were the people that survived that brutality, that cruelty, you know, that, that mm. long incarceration? And he said, well, he said, let me tell you who didn't survive it. He said it wasn't the big, tall, strong, tough guys that thought that they could handle, you know, anything in the world. Because when you give people enough time, we can be incredibly cruel and brutal to each other. He said, so those those individuals were always broken and ended up dying. He said it wasn't even the optimists. You know, the people are like, you know, everything's we're going to be, you know, let go or rescued by Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter. He said, because Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter would come and we wouldn't be released. And Mm. those people died of a broken heart. He said the people who survived were the individuals that understood what they could control and controlled it. And he said, and for us, it was our breathing and our thoughts. Those were the only two things we could control because the Viet Cong, you know, decided when they were gonna be tortured. They decided when they were gonna go to the bathroom. They decided when they were gonna eat. So they had control over everything else. But they, Stockdale and the people that survived figured out, I got to control my breathing and I got to control my thoughts. And if I can do that, I can survive this. Wow. That is so profound because all of us at any point, no matter what situation we're in, can control our breathing and our thoughts. Yeah. And we have a lot, you know, we're not, we're not in jail. We're not basically in, no. in shackles and stuff like so we can we control can, more we can control our attitude our efforts and things like that as well so there are more things that we can control now but for them the, those were really the only two things that they could control yeah speaking of controlling your attitude i want to go back to something you mentioned in you know the first introduction that you made and something that really stood out to me is that you mentioned you've been on this cancer journey for over a decade now and 
you said that it's likely going to take your life. How do you remain positive? How do you keep providing when you know that the end of the road could come? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess one of the things that I learned playing team sports, you know, basketball obviously is a team sport. And I think it, for me, it was team sports. I think whatever team you're on, whether it's your family or, you know, your colleagues or whatever that ends up being, I think one of the things I learned from team sports was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down. And if you think about it, the, the biggest game, team game that we all play is this game of life. And I am on a clinical trial drug now that more than likely is not going to save my life, but may save the life of somebody, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, based on all the data that the doctors are gleaning from my blood tests and my scans and things like that. You know, people will be saved that I will never know, that I will never have the opportunity to meet because I'll be gone. But that's that the way I look at that, the reason I go and do, you know, every day and shake and throw up and all that stuff is because I realized that this just isn't about me. This is about people, like I say, who I'll never have the opportunity to meet, who may down the road be able to be cured from their cancer and things like that, be able to stay with their family and grow old and things like that. And that will be because I continue to do what I'm doing and will help them somewhere down the road. Wow. How selfless. We're coming to a close now and we do have a closing question. However, I know that your book has like 10 different principles in it. So before I move to the closing question on this podcast, is there anything that you feel like you haven't shared that you want to share with the audience today? Um, I'll, I'll share another another nurse story. It's all I got is basketball or nurse stories. You know, I love it though. I love it. <laughs> So I, I had a I had a different nurse who asked me what it was like to have my foot amputated in 2018 and my leg amputated in 2020, and and I, I certainly have told him it, it has not been easy. You know, I'm I'm six foot eight inches tall, so falling is not an option when you're learning to walk again. You get hurt from this height and things yeah. like that. So it, it it's really been a struggle for me. But what I told them is, cancer can take all my physical faculties. But cancer can't touch my mind, it can't touch my heart, and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are, Lori. That's who everybody who's listening to us really is. And we spend a lot of time, you know, is my hair right? You know, does my body look good? You know, am I wearing the right clothes? And we spend a lot of time on the external. And I don't think we near we spend nearly as, as much time on our heart, our mind, and our soul. This is This is just a vessel or a house to house who we really are. Now, I'm not telling you not to go to the gym. I'm not telling you not to meditate and eat right and do all the things. I think you absolutely should do those things. But I also think you should spend more time developing, thinking about working on your heart, your mind, and your soul, because that's really, at the end of the day, who you are. Yeah, I love that. And thank you for ending on that as well, because that's exactly what holistic fitness is about. You know, we know we're meant to exercise. We know we're meant to eat well. But ultimately, if you do do that and you lose all the weight, once you lose the weight, you're going to be searching for something else. So you can either do the inner work at the start and love yourself and then be surprised at what you can achieve, or you'll be forced to do it at the end when you're reaching for 
the, you know, eyelashes or the nails or the Botox or, you know, something else external, which is cool if you do any of those things, but sure. you just got to, if you're doing it for external validation, you're going to be seeking some other form of external validation once you complete that journey. Right. Yeah. We do have a closing question on this podcast. Uh-oh. If you were... Uh oh, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> if you were to give your 20 tw- year old self a sentence of advice, what would you tell him? That's a great question. Let me answer that with a, another story, if you don't mind. I love it. So, so when, when I was growing up, I was always a big fan of Westerns. You know, my mom and dad used to let me stay up late and watch Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And my favorite was Wild, Wild West. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out. I, you, you may have seen it. It was a, it was a huge blockbuster. It starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not made up characters just for the movie. Now, Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt Earp, most of his adult life, had been some form of a lawman. And somehow these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds come together and form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying of tuberculosis at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died at that sanitarium and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. Wyatt at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money, he has no job, he has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And in this almost final scene in the movie, they're talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, when I was younger, I was in love with my cousin, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all that I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt kind of nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal. There's just life. And get on with living yours. Laura, you and I probably know people. There's probably people out there listening to us that are sort of sitting back and saying, well, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. Or when that occurs, I'll have a successful life. Or when this happens, I'll have a significant life. I guess what I learned and what I'd like to leave your audience with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there, find the reason you were put on the face of this earth, use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do at the end of your life, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. Mm. What a wonderful way to leave us. 20-year-olds, just keep on trying, keep on, and you'll find those gifts. Keep on trying different things. Wow. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Terry. You've had an extraordinary life, in my opinion, and a really inspirational story. And I've just loved listening to some of your principles around mindset and around how to live that extraordinary and excellent life. Where can people find you and where can people buy your book? So uh, Sustainable Excellence is available anywhere you can get a book online, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Apple iBooks, wherever you get your books. Um, I have a blog called motivationalcheck.com uh, that every day I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought usually comes a question about how maybe you can apply that in your life. On Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message and recommendations for books to read, videos to watch and things like that. And you can leave me a message. And that's all available at motivationalcheck.com. 
Amazing. Thank you so much, Terry. And thank you so much for joining. For everyone else, thanks for tuning in to the Holistic Fitness Podcast. And until next time, keep shining. Keep shining.